seems quite a while ago that I sat here at the at this time on the first full day of the retreat and uh, looked into this rather seems to me beautiful sea of human presence and life and uh, beings and uh, I'm happy to find myself back here again at this time. There's something about perhaps sometimes just acknowledging and honoring cycles and processes and uh, coming in here and for me part of my practice and offering the Dharma teaching in the evening is to just take a few moments to really both pay my respects to and spend a little time with the Buddha, in this case the image of the Buddha, but uh, for me my heart sense of also the the Buddha and uh, the incredible offering that he as a human being made to the world and to my life, but also the Buddha that uh, is not just the historical human being but the, the awakened principle of life that flows through the generations and is very, it seems to me, alive in this place and amongst us. And it's an honor for me to sit in the seat of this flow of transmission, of sharing, and uh, to follow on from Joseph as a dear friend, beloved teacher, and venerable elder of our tradition, just the sense of, oh, how nice. I get to have something to say after Joseph has spoken. <laughs> See, though, it's kind of silly, really, but it's true. It's nice. Ah, oh, okay, how nice. Uh, Joseph uh, coming so generously to share touched me, as he has done in many ways over the years, but in this particular occasion, just coming to share with this retreat and offer to this retreat and to you and to me also. And knowing that this is the first year, this is the first year after 40 years he taught the three-month retreat here just about at this time. And he had a year where he didn't do that. And he's moving into retirement. And bless him, he came out of retirement for us. How lovely. Just a little bit anyway. 40 years plus of teaching, dear Joseph. And for me it's also touching because actually this retreat marks for me a significant, in a way, something that uh, it was in the New Year's retreat at Gaia House in Devon in 1992 that I first taught on a retreat 25 years ago. The New Year's retreat there was a little smaller and uh, shorter, but Nonetheless, the first retreat is not one easily forgotten in the role that uh, I sit in now. And so what to speak about this evening? I haven't been here to hear the many rich and clearly powerful teachings that have been offered by so many different people in so many ways, so many teachers through this retreat. Normally I've heard what's been said before and this time I... I've heard some of it, but a lot of it I didn't. So, in a certain way, I thought, oh, well, I'll just follow on from Joseph. That's the one I heard. And 
of course, some of before, some sense of that. I was touched by the interest and the questions as Joseph himself was engaged by them and obviously we could see his engagement and uh, it felt like, well, this this conversation could continue. So uh, I'd like to reflect some on aspects of what we're doing, we could say, what's the point? What this is that we're engaged in and what it is that's engaged in this, we could say. What it is that we're engaged in and what it is that's engaged in this. So it strikes me that one of the ways of developing and deepening understanding, and we talk about this as a path of wisdom, seeing that wisdom and understanding is profoundly transformative in our lives, in our worlds. We talk about insight, meditation, understanding. It makes a difference. We see those moments of, oh, oh, that's what's going on. And suddenly something changes. Even if what's going on continues to be going on, something is different, profoundly different. Because we've seen, we've understood, we've comprehended in such a way as to be somehow freed from being bound by or entangled in that which is going on. And in that process of seeking understanding, of developing wisdom, there are different streams and elements we can explore, we can discover, we can usefully and fruitfully give time to, deepening in. And one of the aspects that comes through very clearly in the sort of the foundational tradition of, uh, of the teachings of the Buddha and the, the Pali Canon, the record of those teachings that forms the foundation of uh, a lot of teachings within this tradition here at IMS and what we call the Theravada, the uh, doctrine of elders, we could say, or teachings of the elders, is a, is a way of looking at things in which we kind of take them apart. We see what they look like to begin with and how we might imagine them to be and then we slowly look at them more carefully and we let them slow down and we refine our sensitivity and we start to see their constructed nature. We start to see that they open up to reveal more subtle frameworks and patterns. And in a certain way, it's a, it's a kind of a reductive analysis. It's like we, we break things down. It's a particular way of thinking and understanding things that you see what they're made up of. We've done a lot of that as a Western culture. And it's very fundamental in the whole scientific method that is pretty important to our whole sense of what and who we are for most of us. That kind of being able to break things down and see into them. And the real power and value of that is, again, it was touched on last night in various ways, the capacity to see in each moment the phenomena, the experience and its changing nature, its fluidity, inviting us and ultimately compelling us when we see it really clearly to let go, to not bind ourselves to that which is fluid and changing, seeing that it causes suffering. Unless, of course, because the Buddha never said don't do that. If you actually like suffering, it's the best way. (laughs) It's simply, if you do this, that happens. This is the teaching of the Buddha. If you do this, that happens. If you want this, we'll do it. If you want suffering, hold on to things that are changing. 
this and the the way as Joseph spoke about it again beautifully and I, I I appreciated hearing from you know some of you in the groups today how the value of some of the perspectives and teaching there that sense of phenomena being known and that way in which we just kind of oh, okay yeah gives us a sense of something that's going on that's not just about phenomena there's almost a sort of an outbreath and a ha oh. and yet What's important to know with these kind of processes, they're not setting up in what we could call ontological position. And I'm slightly embarrassed to use a big word like that. Um, I'm not a philosopher or a student of ontology. (laughs) Or maybe I am, who knows? I wouldn't have called myself that. But what that's about is the attempt to state a metaphysical position, to say reality is like this. That's what I understand. I hope I got it right. But uh, approximately. Reality is this. So phenomena being known is a way of seeing things in order to help us release. It's not a statement about this is how things are. And that's it. Just phenomena being known. But it's easy for us to take it as such. Or empty phenomena rolling on. Oh, That just kind of lets us start to let go of our investment in or our clinging to but it's not intended, and the Buddha really was careful not to be making statements about this is some absolute reality picture I'm giving you. It's a way to look at experience that enables you to be free in their presence. And this is the gift of the teaching and the practice, one of the many gifts. And so, bearing that in mind, we can look a little bit at how we take in and how we work with different elements of teaching and practice, I think, very helpfully. The Buddha was remarkably skilled, an incredible mind this human being had. When I bow down, it's like what the Buddha did with his mind, there's no way. Even with millions of lifetimes, I could ever imagine my mind being able to do what that mind did. Maybe that's a limit in my own imagination, but there we are. So it's like, wow, look at what that ability to refine and define and particularly unpack so much, right down to the finest little detail that modern scientific um, method and technology is starting to be able to say, oh yeah, actually, it's like that. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? Two and a half thousand years of development. We're just about at the point where, oh yeah, it's like that. So the Buddha was an expert, we could say, in a reduction exercise. That kind of reduction of dukkha is actually the primary exercise, we could say. But a reductive perceiving into the components and the constructed nature of experience. And this is, again, something very helpful. And yet it's interesting and perhaps distinguishable from our own situation, that with that reductive analysis, that breaking down into seeing and showing that there's in one sense, of course, absolutely nothing there in what we call me or what we call this. We can't find, we can't ever, it, got it, it's that. Can't, never do, never will. But that happened also as a teaching being given in a context where there was a very clearly established and fully validated cosmology that embraced a whole nother dimensionality of experience 
that wasn't being subjected to this similar kind of analysis. A cosmology that involved earth goddesses who made the whole earth shake in order to let the Buddha know he could be sitting under the tree on the night of his awakening when questioned about it by Mara. And we kind of think, oh, come on, it's a bit of a nice story, isn't it? Wasn't it surely all psychological? Well, I don't know. It's easy to dismiss it that way, but I don't know. And the Brahmas, these amazing beings that the Buddha seemed to have contact with who were full of compassion and other qualities, truthfulness, um, other things. We dismiss them kind of out of hand because that's, they don't, don't fit in our worldview. We're serious, rational, scientific, intelligent people and we certainly would feel a little bit embarrassed to be suggesting that the earth was really a goddess that shook <laughs> to let the Buddha know that he was okay to be sitting under the tree. But what if it did? What if it did? It's like it brings in an element of something inexplicable and something we could say, and I'll use this word intentionally, divine. <laughs> Noting, and of course, we're free to have our different relationships with a word. We may or may not resonate with it. Could use another word. Another word we could use would be something that is sacred. How do we resonate with that? Sorry, I can't, I can't find that with an um, electron microscope. Does it really exist? But... Actually, when you've got an electron microscope, material form, you can't find that either. Does that really exist? We've got so clever with where we've gone with our minds and our skill that actually it's not just the weird fanciful things that we've disconstructed. It's actually the really ordinary solid things too. But because they're walking around or sitting in front of us apparently visible, we don't quite take that part on board so with our easy scientific rationalist orientation which for many of us is what we grew up in which we're sort of swimming in so we can't see it we lose something very easily of Again, what we could say of the sacred, of the divine. We lose something important. And it was, I, I really love that it's, it's beautiful, the sense of when Joseph was speaking last night, the Big Dipper. And actually when we take away the construct and the projection onto the image of a somethingness, which is essentially giving self to the Big Dipper, making it, it's a something, we say, oh, it isn't. It's just some points of light. And actually what happens then is it's simply in the sky amongst and not separate from everything else. And we could just stop there and say, oh, it's no longer separate. It's nothing. But what we can also say is, oh, but being, being no longer something separate from everything else, it's just become everything connected to everything else. And that's got an interesting feeling response I find in myself when I contemplate it that way. It's like, oh, something in me opens up. Something in me looks and becomes interested. It's not like, oh, the mystery's gone. It's like, or the interesting thing called the Big Dipper is gone. It's more like something is being 
pointed to, revealed, just... It's not any different than what was there before, of course, exactly. Nothing is lost. Nothing equally has been produced in the letting go of that construction. But something is revealed. And I think we naturally as human beings have an interest in what is being revealed. Even if it's not an interest in our mind as such, because the mind doesn't always quite like it when the nice boxes and packages of things get taken apart. It's like, hmm. Because the mind's a great facility. The thinking intellectual mind is a great facility for organizing, packaging, boxing, chopping up into smaller pieces and separating out all these things. But the human organism is something much more full and whole and rich than just the intellectual functioning aspects. Brilliant, amazing and crucial as they are in so many ways for our lives. But as someone was um, observing in the small group and very humorously we, I think, collectively agreed afterwards when we saw what was happening was that it's like they were basically recognizing that the, all the thinking activity was actually not going to resolve their situation for them. And then, of course, the mind kept coming back and saying, but, but it might, but it might. It's like, but I am really important. I am really the thing that's going to solve this for you. And it was like, actually, no, I think, I think something in me, as the person was expressing in their own words, not like, quite like this, actually, I think I kind of got that that isn't what's going to happen. More thinking about this isn't actually going to come up with an answer. But the mind was going, yes, it is, it will. <laughs> or at least there's a risk that if you don't keep thinking, you might miss out on finding out. <laughs> it's like, wow, look at our mind. So we can talk about this path as pointing to what's possible for us as human beings. And one of the ways we can talk about what that looks like is, as again, spoken and beautifully expressed and such a powerful, wonderful, concise teaching. Liberation through non-clinging. Just, you know, said it all. Boom. We got it. I hope. Some of us. Some of the time we remember it. Ah, yeah. And at the same time as we hear that, and it's so useful and so central and so important, there's also further and other ways that aren't better, but at other times might be useful in different ways in the wholeness of the teaching and the practice and what we're doing here. And non-clinging as a word, is it's often translated as Non-attachment, clinging and attachment are different ways we talk about this process. Now, just to say, as someone I think referred in, again, one of the groups a couple of days ago, they were a little uncomfortable or didn't found themselves not quite liking the language of detachment. And I said, well, you know, of course, that's understandable because something in us is attached to our ability to be attached to things. It's scary to let go. And so it's understandable. It might just be a kind of a hesitation with letting go that says, I don't like the idea of detachment. But at the same time, I actually don't use the word detachment to talk about what the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. Because personally, I don't think 
it's the most useful way to express what the word it's drawn from means. Because detachment can give us a sense of kind of something that was attached, as in connected, becoming disconnected. Or as we said, and I think I reflect in the group, but you know, you could have a metaphor for as opposed to detached. If you said dismembered, ooh, oh, no, that's definitely not what we're here for. You know, I see if I was attached to my arm before, and now I'm going to get detached from my arm. And we realize, oh no, dismemberment is not what we're here for. Rememberment, remembering, actually putting things, reconnecting, putting things back together. Because remembering isn't just a function of cognitive recollection of information, remembering is actually the opposite to dismembering. And when we talk about sati as not just wakefulness and awareness and mindfulness, but also remembering. Sati, mindfulness, awareness, presence, is also something that remembers, that counterbalances the tendency to dismember, to cut things off, which we do, not always intentionally. And so it's good just to recognize the subtle ways we can pick up the language and turn it in ways that fit into our habitual unconscious patternings without even knowing we're doing it. And we all do it. That's the nature of this practice is we do in the practice what we do anyway in our lives. But the blessing is that we start to see that that's what we're doing and we start to see the effect of it. Of course, sometimes that's really difficult for us and again from one of the groups today how when we see that we're doing that thing that we do and we know it's causing suffering and we can't somehow quite yet not do it it's so hard to be there it takes so much patience so much courage so much compassion for ourselves to realize obviously there's more here i need to understand and often what we need to understand is we've understood the fact that this causes me suffering what we may not yet have understood is, what do I get out of this? What's it seeming, appearing to, or actually somehow giving me? So... We could talk about non-attachment as a much more useful image than detachment. For myself, um, I tend to think that detachment, basically it's like we're entangled and detachment does this, boom, pulls away and stays away at a safe distance because it was suffering when I was attached. That's what it sort of feels like. And the image I sometimes use is, okay, well, that's sometimes needed. We need to detach, we need to withdraw from. But we don't actually want to be distant from our life. And non-attachment can be this close, this intimate, this engaged with our life, our experience. And if it needs to move, it can. But it's this close. It's not this attached, entangled, bound in, but nor is it this off at some safe distance having a look at what's going on thinking, nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so it's also good when we're talking about attachment to acknowledge the word attachment and how it's used and importantly used in the context of modern Western psychological understanding to refer to that really important healthy connection that is formed between an infant and the person from whom they receive their mothering care. Which even if they or we did not feel we received quite that much of as we might have wished for or needed, and of course none of us got it perfectly, we all of us got enough of some of it, enough to have actually survived. So we did get some of that but maybe not quite enough. And yet that, that bond, that connection, is something to, uh, to see. Oh, we're not putting down or rejecting connection. And I think it's particularly important in this context to remember that the Buddha lost his mum when he was seven days old. His mother died. He was raised by his aunt. We know these days what that does to a small baby, even one born of many thousands of lifetimes of remarkably deep practice and on their way to full Buddhahood, I suspect. I may be wrong on that. Um, but it makes it pretty tricky to connect with things if the most important thing you were connected to disappeared pretty soon after you turned up. It's a challenge. I'm not saying it's insurmountable or unworkable, because it is. But just naming that, for me, it just brings a whole sense of tender resonance, both for the Buddha, but also a, a willingness to look at the flavor and the orientation of the articulation of wisdom that was his amazing gift, and I say take nothing away from it, just to be careful that that particular tendency of caution with actually valuing what we might come into contact with, because it turns out to be unreliable, sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the teaching, a core element of the teaching, isn't subtly flavoured with a psychological dynamic that would be, I think, inevitably part of the experience of that human being. And uh, attachment, interestingly, the word we use, upadana, I think Akenshino spoke of this here last year, or some previous, a co-teacher who's been here with uh, on this retreat in previous years, and a very beautiful analysis of so just briefly the you know attachment the word actually could be broken down into a dana non dana non generosity non open handedness we could say so it 's like holding clinging tightness, but non openness and oop is like an intensifier, so very very not dana very very not generosity that's what attachment is it's like this but it's again interesting to hear oh, that's not about connection that's really got nothing to do with connection non-attachment is not about non-connection it's about not very strong not generosity <laughs> and again it feels very different for me when I reflect about it in that way. And we do, all of us, need healthy connection to life. And the tendency to pull away from it, to reject it, to sometimes use teachings that point to emptiness as a basis for withholding 
or negating any sense of value in that which we're in contact with. That's empty. It's got nothing in it for me. Now, it's clear and true that Buddha's teaching is saying, this thing or anything can't in and of itself give it to you what you want all for you, from your life. It can't provide you full, lasting, ongoing satisfaction. But imagining it has nothing to offer us at the same time is perhaps to go a little too far. Because every moment, every phenomena, every experience actually offers us the opportunity to be awake, the opportunity to connect. And more than that. So, when we talk about emptiness, well, what we're saying, to see something as empty, is to, to understand it's actually empty because it's an empty of separateness or of inherent existence. That's what the full expression of what emptiness is pointing to says. It's not empty like a some kind of just absence, like there's nothing there. And clearly there's something there. You know, there's all these stories in the Zen tradition. If the, the student comes into the master and says, oh, I've understood it's all empty, as if nothing matters anymore, and the Zen master takes their stick and gives them a big thump. You know, is it empty? Well, it hurts. Well, something's there. <laughs> something's here. But maybe not quite in the way we thought it was. And yet, so if we see, oh, it's empty of separation or separateness. Oh, you mean it's full of connected arisingness. It's separate of inherent existence. It's full of connected arisingness. And again, just to notice how those, I'm not setting those up as ultimate positions, but as other ways you could talk about what this is pointing to. To be empty of separate or inherent existence is to be full of connectedness and full of the arising and passingness of life. The fluid, dynamic movement of life, in fact. And it's like a connected transformingness, we could call it. That's what we see. If we watch, we say, oh, it's keeping on transforming it, and it's transforming in accordance with conditions, which it's in relationship to. So it's connected. Our experience is constantly changing, but it's changing not in a way that's sort of cold and sort of mechanistic. It's actually a live, dynamic, relational, ongoing transformational process. That's what's happening, if you want to say what's happening. Equally, as you could say, empty phenomena rolling on. That's also what's happening. But that one helps us, uh, empty phenomena, helps us unpick a tendency to grab hold of and overvalue. The other perhaps helps us let go of a tendency to pull away from or devalue. Can you hear how that works differently? And the middle path is always, the middle way of the Buddha's teaching is always about finding the balance of coming back into the center, away from the extreme and the way we lean out of or away from that place of balance, of centeredness. So when we see this connected transformingness, 
or this connected arisingness, we also are much more easily likely, not necessarily, not always, but we're much more likely to also feel a sense of its preciousness. We see this preciousness of life. We see it in a a young or newborn baby. It's connected. It's just come out of another body. It's about as connected as it gets. And it's unarguably precious. No one has problems with noticing that. And of course, within moments of it turning up, it's starting to change. It's growing. So that, that transforming this happens more obviously and quickly in one so young. Equally, of course, in someone elder and perhaps near to death. We might equally sense immediately that sense of presence when someone sits quivering in the kind of translucence that comes to a human being close to their last breaths. And they're almost like you start to be able to quite almost see through their skin and almost see through their very existence. And it's strange because they're just as solid as they were if you poke them. I wouldn't recommend poking them, but... <laughs> But if you look and you feel, that's, that's how it feels. I've, it's been my experience and, you know, a few occasions with someone at that time or near that time. And yet the preciousness is, is just apparent, even in a body that's, to be frank, wrecked. The preciousness is not less for that. And, and a body that's not going to be with us much longer. And it's not less precious for the fact that it's just here a little while now. In fact, more so. And we have to think about that. You don't need me to tell you that. You know that, I'm sure. But in this context, it's important to maybe acknowledge and reflect on it. Because this sense of what is precious, of what we value, this is why we're here. Why do we practice? Because we care about life and our life and this life. And we care so deeply. That caring runs to the very depth and heart of what we are. It seems to me. And yet we also are working at the same time and it's central and fundamental in terms of the work that we have to do with the way in which we also don't care and the way in which we don't always see what's precious and the way in which we don't always recognize the immense value of what is in us, around us and in everything. We just don't always manage to do that and it's tragic and it's painful. And it leads to a profound loss. And one of the deepest woundings that I see and I hear in the people of our world, and particularly our culture, and I know it in my own experience too, I'm not saying it's something I just look at out there, <coughs> is the way in which we can at times undermine ourselves, deny our own value, the critic, the judgment, the shaming. So painful. It's like we sometimes lose a sense of our human dignity. We lose our respect for the human being. 
We're not able to find it. And you know, there's a profound loss of dignity and respect in our Western culture. It's one of its deepest... How would I say it? One of its deepest both wounds but also vulnerabilities to have lost that respect. It's a poem by Mary Oliver. She writes, entitled The Arrowhead, she writes... The arrowhead which I found beside the river was glittering and pointed. I picked it up and said, Now it's mine. I thought of showing it to friends. I thought of putting it, such an imposing trinket, in a little box on my desk. Halfway home, past the cut fields, the old ghost stood under the hickories. I would rather drink the wind he said, I would rather eat mud and die than steal as you steal, than lie as you lie. Remarkable encounter, it seems, expressed in this poem. One of the cultural realities that we're living and breathing and practicing within is a a loss of respect for other life forms, what we call other in so many ways, including what we call inanimate, so-called inanimate matter. And when we begin to respect what we are and where we are, there's a natural quality of dignity, of uprightness that expresses and embodies something that is beautiful, that is powerful, and that animals and trees and landscapes just embody and express effortlessly. And we know it when we meet a wild creature and just pause for a moment, if we're so fortunate that it should pause with us. There's something of dignity and respect. And even walking over this morning in the cold and we didn't really make eye contact. There was a mouse about the size of a walnut. But it was just like, it's doing its thing. And my God, it's cold out here. <laughs> and it's just itself. Didn't even look worried to see this large, and I mean really large, with a Michelin man jacket on. <laughs> Two-legged being walking past. I sometimes wonder and reflect, and I don't know if it's so, but I sometimes wonder if some of the, the pain and the struggle we experience and the strikingly difficult and at times complex or challenging to work with patternings around guilt and shame, that it's not something about us personally at all. I mean, of course, we know it's not because it's not self. And we know we can see it's conditioned and constructed and it came from things that we learnt and situations in our homes or with our parents or whatever. We can see all of that and it's useful. And in a way, the psychological unpacking of that can be important and necessary for some of us um, and essential for some of us. And in another way, I sometimes think that it's just that we've simply become sensitive in ourselves to a fundamental dimension of a shared human cultural karma which is that we have made or imagined ourselves somehow the pinnacle of creation 
if we're religious. Or we've imagined ourselves the pinnacle of evolution if we're scientific. And science is really just our modern Western religion, to be honest. It's got all the features. Uh, I won't go into that. That's another whole thing. But it really is. It really is. Now that you can have two different scientific versions arguing with each other, it's like that's what religion does. It's the same thing. It's inhabiting the same place in our psyche that religion's used to. And we just pretend that it's not because we're beyond that, because we're smart, modern, Western, rational characters. But the effect of imagining ourselves to be the pinnacle of creation, or the pinnacle, or at least even just the leading edge of, revolu of evolution, is to feel somehow entitled and justified in treating others as less than that. Other cultures, peoples, races, genders, species, lands, treated without respect, exploited, destroyed. Peoples, animals, plants, ecosystems. And collectively, culturally, as a human species, we have a karma in which it makes sense to me we would feel some deep sorrow with regard to that. And we might feel some kind of... There's no such thing as appropriate guilt or shame, actually. But we might feel some appropriate remorse that says, oh, wow it would have been really good if we didn't do that and let's see if we can manage to not do that too much more or perhaps ever again to anyone, to anything, to any being or to any living place. Because we're seeing very clearly, aren't we, that there isn't somewhere else? You know, we have this really fanciful idea that there's somewhere else we can put things which you don't really like and they'll stay over there and not bother us. It's a fantasy. There is nowhere that is somewhere else. There's only here. There's only here. And everywhere that we've put something else is just a case of time before it turns out that that somewhere else is actually here too. It's here too. It's coming back. This is the principle of karma. Whatever we put out, it comes back. Excuse me. <laughs> so there's something coming back. So there's a sadness here that calls us to healing. If we feel under those strong reactive patterns, often there's a sadness that's calling us to pay attention and calling us to healing. To see that everything is alive. To see that everything, in the words of one poet, whose poem I just realized I didn't dig out, so I can't read the poem. Um, but the, the poem is... Uh, oh, it, no, it's not going to come. But it, the phrase is... Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when we're practicing, we notice there are times 
when things touch us, when simple things seem to speak to us in a way in which the heart resonates. It's like we're just in contact with it and there's a sense of something that's being transmitted or shared or perceived or understood or realized and none of those words are quite it, but maybe you get the sense of what it means when I say that we go, ah, yeah, and there's a yeah. And it's like we see the preciousness, we see the value, and we see that somehow we're connected with this leaf on a tree, pebble on the ground, person walking past, or just simply sound of this, because something in us is so present to it that there's no separateness. There's no separation taking place, and the heart is wide open for what that means. When we sense the deep preciousness, the deep meaning, the deep aliveness in everything, naturally there's a respect for what we inhabit, for what we care for. I mean, being mindful is in other ways, it's a simple practice in being respectful to everything. If you're going to engage with this, pay attention to it. How do we feel if someone's engaging with us and they're not paying attention? Disrespect it. We don't like it. It doesn't lead to a relationship. Sometimes it leads to the end of one. To respect what we're with, to pay attention to it. So we're not just paying attention because awareness is good. It is good. But because it's respect for life that is happening now. And if you ever have chance to notice or discover a few moments before this might stop happening, this thing called life, immediately everything starts to become something we feel that respect to. It's like, oh my gosh. If this wasn't to continue... I would so miss the funny squiggles on the floorboards. And did I respect them before I remember that? Maybe not so fully. Or something like that. There's a natural dignity we find in valuing everything. We become part of that value and that dignity by not withholding it from what we've called other. When we withhold it from what we call other, we end up withholding it from ourself because we're not separate from that which we've called other. That's what not-self points to. We're not separate from it. And so when we extend that respect and dignity to that around us, we quite naturally find it's also what we inhabit, what we're sitting in. And then, of course, we start to wonder, and um, gosh, I'm just over halfway. <sighs> we start to wonder. So, what is this aliveness? What is this conscious, sensitive responsiveness that's happening? You know, we often have those experiences like, you know, who thinks? Who knows? Who cares? It's interesting, isn't it? We had the one, you know, like, well, well, who's thinking? Or who is knowing? But if we take it, we say, oh, those experiences, when we say, who thinks? We often use that as a negator, don't we? Who thinks that? We mean, oh, no one thinks that. Or we say, who knows? It's, ah. Oh, doesn't really matter. No one cares. Or who cares? It's like, huh. It's interesting. I only 
had the sense of this in, in reflecting and writing this afternoon. And the notes are saying, oh, that's really interesting. Something about when I say, who thinks, or who cares, or who knows, it's dismissive, easily. Or if I say, what thinks? What thinks? Oh, that's really different. Or, what knows? That's really different too. Or, what cares? And there's the sense of being drawn forward, being opened, being called into a sense of engagement with interest. Sorry, I'm just pausing while I'm attempting to do some high-speed editing. Um, how are you doing? <laughs> That's a risky request. <laughs> I think we should really thank you. No, you're very welcome. I'm happy to hear your response. I did ask and... Um, if I don't skip stuff, <laughs> we'll be here for a while. <laughs> so I'm always skipping stuff. Just, just take it from that. But, that, but I know what you mean. I, w I will try and follow the thread through, and I'll just try and do it more concisely from here. And if you need to make a change to your posture as we go, um, please feel free to do that. Um, I never quite know how long it will take to articulate something when it comes fresh into my field. And sometimes when I've done it a couple of times in a certain way, I've got an idea where it's going to go and how long it will take, but for this I don't. Well, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's all right. I think I can do that. I think I can actually move through it slightly more concisely from here. In one of the groups, someone spoke to the sense of feeling themselves as if sort of something about the, the process, their practice, and, and, and just the simple respectfulness that was being embodied seemed to bring a, a sense of as if sitting on a throne. And I was kind of struck with that sense in this context of sitting on a throne and something of what it is to be, you know, the majesty, the, the royalty that sits on a throne, and how, how, the, how the way that has a significance in our, in our culture and our psyche is that, of course, the royals, the rulers who were royal, were so because they were designated as such by God. Now, of course, we might go, you know, come on, guys. So I'm not suggesting that some woman or man or being of other gender in the cloud has pointed this person out and said, you're it. I'm not suggesting that at all. But something of divinity or the sacred being translated into the world of the formed and the shaped is the mystery of life. The fact that all the stuff that's empty is here. How'd it get here? How'd it turn out to be so precious if it just showed up randomly? There's something more to it than that. And you know, our, um, in our Western culture and its influence and the Jude influence by the Judeo-Christianic tradition, you know, 
there's this way in which, actually, let me backtrack from that, you know, the sense of royal and the sense of divine evoking something of the gods. And we, we talk about gods coming into form. The way we talk about the Brahma Viharas, the abiding places of the divine or of divine beings. That's what Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, joy and uh, appreciative joy of uh, mudita and equanimity evenness of uh, of upekka. These are divine qualities the Buddha spoke of and named in those terms. as These are divine. Abiding places of divinity or the divine that we have as a framework of something of what comes in in this way into human life, into the world, a form of existence. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition this very interesting thing that, you know, and the image that God, she so loved the world that she sent her son or her daughter into it. And the image that's understood is meaning God took birth in the world. Now, again, I don't say that, and I'm not at all suggesting that some particular being suddenly created all of this and then decided to jump into it. It's not like that. But there's something of that movement into existence that could be recognizes a teaching of love and of mystery. And that's essentially what that is pointing to. How did God turn up in human flesh? Now, you might not believe that God did at all anyway. Well, fine. But something sacred and precious did. How did that happen? But something sacred and precious did that in so many ways and forms and shapes. And look at them all, my gosh. How did that happen? Rumi says, when it's cold and raining, you are more beautiful. And the snow brings me even closer to your lips. The inner secret, that which was never born, you are that freshness. And I am with you now. I can't explain the goings or the comings. You Enter suddenly, and I am nowhere again. Inside the majesty. Inside the majesty, nowhere again. The teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma, is pointing to the deathless. Nibbana is the language the Buddha used. Articulated again precisely and perfectly as just this, the end of craving. Just, it's just that. That's what it is. The end of craving is Nibbana. Liberation, freedom, the fulfillment of the awakening journey. And it's not just that. It's also the deathless. It is that which was never born, which is outside time. And this Dharma that we're engaged in, that is our refuge, together with the Buddha and the Sangha, the Dharma which is our refuge, this is something that's spoken of in very particular ways in the tradition, and beautifully so. And 
six epithets are known of the uh, are spoken of of the the Buddha, of sorry of the Dharma. The Buddha has quite a few as well, that are chanted regularly in the monasteries and uh, and um, certainly in the monasteries I've spent time and not as a monk but as a lay person, um, where I've been. And the first is it's well proclaimed. It's been taught well. It's been spoken and taught well. And the last is to be realized for themselves or by ourselves, by the wise. Not for ourselves in terms of, you know, personally for me, but by individually, by each human being that's waking up. And the middle four, which are the ones that I kind of like because they go really nicely when chanted. Sanditiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanaiko. Even better with musicality, but I still just like the rhythm. Sanditiko, apparent here and now. Right here, right now. Akaliko, timeless, timeless. Not in the realm of past or future or movement through trajectories which time creates the appearance of. Ahipasiko, inviting investigation. Come and see for yourself. Not just come and see you, not just see for yourself. You know what that sounds like? See for yourself. No, come, come. Oh, come. Come and see for yourself. It's a call. It's a calling to which we might respond. And Opanaiko, leading onwards. Ah, oh, leading onwards. It's not we stop here. We don't just get to this point and go, this is nice. It's like onwards, onwards. It's not leading to a certain good point where you'll be happy. No, leading onwards. Do you feel the way in which that just has a movement and a flow that continues? If we hear and sense and feel the Dharma in these terms, we get interested to know it more deeply. We feel the heart-mind drawn towards its own depths. The heart-mind. We can talk again about consciousness and say, um, Vijnana is consciousness, sense-based consciousness, the Buddha's word. I think Vijnana. Sorry, I'm not great on Pali. Tell me if I mispronounce it, if anyone knows better. Um, Sense-based consciousness, this knowing that we can just start to discern of phenomena being known. We start to see that. Oh yeah, like in a mirror, the reflection is the image. And then the reflective capacity is the knowing. And it's, oh, well, yeah, there's this sensory phenomena being known. And there's a knowing. That's one way we talk about consciousness and dharma and in practice. But we also talk about citta. Chitta is heart-mind in its best simple translation, I would say. Not just mind or consciousness, but heart-mind. But it includes what we could call consciousness. And yet it's the whole field of a sensitive, resonant, responsive, we could say organ of knowing, in which consciousness reveals phenomenal experience. Moment by moment, consciousness emerging together with the phenomena, as Joseph was illustrating again, beautifully and clearly last night. And yes, it is this that's happening. And this sensitive, resonant organ of knowing that can be bound in contracted patterns of structured, conditioned reactivity, and that can equally be free 
that can move, that can flow, that can be responsive. This is drawn towards its own depth. This is what I would say is what calls us into, carries us through, and is equally the fulfillment of the path. It's this being drawn towards our own depths to know what is this that is awake? What is this that is the awakened nature of life? We won't know that just through our heads. We can't solve it with a further question or a good answer. I want to play you something. If I can get it to happen. And it's someone else. In fact, you'll know him. Maybe not personally. Leonard Cohen. He died last year. Bless him, dear man. For me, a brilliant poet, teacher, and uh, extraordinary human being. I'll hold back the reminisce. Um, Here's the song, Love Itself. He's speaking to his experience of something, I think, profound and remarkable. So just listen. The light came through the window Straight from the sun above
offering but just to say so it's said coming back from where he'd been his room it looked the same but there was nothing left between the nameless and the name nothing had changed just like when the Big Dipper disappears, nothing has changed. But something is different. <laughs> 
the end of separation between what we could call the nameless and that which can be named, between that which we can call the formless and that which is formed, between that which is unseen and that which can be seen, that which is unknowable and that which can be known. And because there's no distance between them, we understand they are not different things. When love itself disappears, it's not that love is gone. Love itself, as a separate thing, separated out from the very nature of what it's disappeared into. And what that is, we just leave that unsaid. But the very nature of it is wakefulness and the very nature of it is love. And that's why we're here, as far as I'm concerned. So let's just have a couple of quiet moments together to finish. So may we all deepen in our practice here together and in our lives to know more and fully and deeply this life that we are part of, this wakefulness and this love that we are for our own welfare and liberation, for the welfare and the liberation of all that lives, for the well-being of all that is. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Is it the mic or my voice? Is it still working? Thank you for your presence, for your practice, for your patience. Thank you very much. It's 8.45. Let's have the bell at 5 to 9.
Well, should we say at nine o'clock? Actually, probably at nine o'clock. And they're sitting at five past nine. Do come, do come along. We have a new child and some... <laughs> and some new capacities from which it can be offered. <laughs> if it's fair to say, Jean will be leading it. Not myself. Thank you. And please don't need to wait for me in departing now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.